Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kunst and we have 25 days left to vote out Donald Trump. So let's talk about what happens when a democracy is shattered and violence replaces politics. Now I'm not talking about Antifa. This is when militias organize in secret. The plot to seize the leader of a government. They stockpile guns and explosives. I'm also not talking about Libya, where seven years ago today, I actually worked after the collapse of Gaddafi as militias were fighting with each other and stockpiling weapons. No, I'm, I'm talking about Michigan right now. This is what failed leadership looks like. This is what a failed state creates. This is the chickens of Donald Trump's anti-science, racism, and misogyny coming home to roost. These right-wing jobs plotted to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, and torture her. The female governor of Michigan, I might add. Female. They were planning to put her show on a show trial. For what crime? For impinging on their sacred freedoms by insisting they wear masks and social distance? Let's be clear. We tend to think of these right-wing terrorists as right-wing nuts, fringe characters. The man immediately responsible for this, of course, is Donald Trump, though, who is their recruiter-in-chief. Listen to the target of this coup attempt, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, at her news conference. Let's play that clip real quick. Just last week, the president of the United States stood before the American people and refused to condemn white supremacists and hate groups like these two Michigan militia groups. Stand back and stand by, he told them. Stand back and stand by. Hate groups heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry, as a call to action. When our leaders speak, their words matter. They carry... Hate groups heard the president's words as a rallying cry. This president has gone beyond just taking advantage of our divisions. He's actively fomenting them. And there is no one left to stop them. Everyone with any strength to tell him to knock it off is gone. All the president's men are in jail, indicted, fired, fired again, fired again, or sick with COVID right now. It's just him, some steroids, and his Twitter account running the show. Tweeting threats and madness and grand schemes, signaling to the far right, or what they might think is a signal, which might be even worse. Sadly, it isn't actually a big distance from the criminal plot in Michigan to the uprising in the Orthodox Jewish communities of South Brooklyn. Let's show that video of what's happening right now there. Orthodox community complaining about restrictions, burning masks, beating up journalism, journalists. There is a thread here. 
And when you pull on that thread, you find Donald Trump at the end of it. You find ignorance, no nothingism, selfishness, and maybe above all, you find a refusal to accept that we are all one community of extraordinary diversity. If you accept that we are all one community, then the sacrifice such that it is of wearing a mask becomes easier to bear. You are protecting others in your community, even if you've never met them. The smaller you make your community, the higher you build the walls, the easier it is to think it's okay to endanger others. Whether you are plotting to kidnap or kill your governor in Michigan or just refusing to accept public health rules in Brooklyn. From the beginning, Trump has been all about separating us from them. There was that wall, supposed wall, to stop Mexicans. Then the trade war to stop the Chinese. Now that mask has become a symbol of what they will do to us if we don't stand up to them. Even his own party now sees that Donald Trump has gone too far. Did you know that Mitch McConnell won't go to the White House because he says they aren't fighting the virus properly? Mitch McConnell finally woke up and realized what was happening, just in time for his election. Two things scare me right now. The first is that Biden's surge in the polls will make us complacent. And I hope that we've learned that lesson from 2016. But the second thing is that Donald Trump is clearly in a spiral beyond any madness he's exhibited in the past. That was obviously the message behind the bill Nancy Pelosi offered yesterday to create a streamlined process to temporarily remove a president incapacitated by illness. I doubt she really thinks this could happen before Election Day or even needs to, but she made her political point. That's what it's about. Some combination of medications and looming political defeat are driving Donald Trump over the edge. He shouldn't have his finger on the button, any button, not even the Twitter button. Look at all the chaos he's creating just with Twitter. The other day, he scuttled talks over a new stimulus package. He said he would think about it after he's reelected. Like it was some sort of, you know, candy that you got for voting for him. That was so remarkably self-destructed that his own party is trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again now. The White House said today it was about to send up to $1.6 trillion into this proposal. That's about half a trillion short of what Pelosi and the Democrats want, which of course is way less than what progressives want and working people need. I don't know how they're going to bridge that. The Republicans are going to have a tough time making a case that their proposal is better with so few days left. I do know that failure hurts millions of out-of-work people, all members of our community. And that's really what this is about. What do we do to strengthen our community? We have a fantastic Fem Friday show today. Uh, first, we have Esperanza Fonseca. She's a labor and policy organizer and a sex trade survivor. She's been writing about this, uh, been reading her work. It's really fascinating. You want to stick around for that. Then we will have an amazing panel with writer Emil Niazi and Kylie Brakeman, whose video mocking neoliberal fracking and woke culture is going viral if you haven't seen that online. All that coming up. But first, here is what is at the top of my newsfeed. File this under stuff Bernie's been telling us for years. NPR re released an interview Thursday with author Anand Giridharadas. I can never say his name. Progr progressive think tank member Chuck Collins and Fortune Media CEO Alan Murray discussing how the pandemic has enriched the wealthiest Americans as it has devastated the working class. Collins points out that CEOs Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have seen their wealth expand vastly during the pandemic. 
during the last seven months, Musk's wealth has tripled, tripled to $90 billion, while Bezos has added $72 billion to his worth. As leftists, we need to be drawing lines between the wealth creation of these CEOs and the conditions in which their workers are forced to labor. You might remember that in 2019, Musk actually came under fire for repeatedly shutting down workers' attempts to unionize. And Bezos worked too slowly in providing his warehouse workers with PPE, refusing to give them a truly supportive sick leave policy during the pandemic. And of course, they organized and have been fighting him and showing up at his doorstep protesting him because he cannot run away from what he is doing to his own workers. No wonder they are making more money by putting profits over people and cutting corners while workers are left to suffer. Well, turns out inequality got us here. Oxfam International's commitment of reducing inequality index, according to a report from Common Dreams, scored 158 countries based on the provision of workers' rights, progressive taxes, and spending on health care. They found that in 103 countries, one out of three workers lacked sick leave, and only one in six countries spent the recommended 15% of the budget on health care for the people. No wonder people across the world have struggled during the pandemic. They don't have health care. We need socialized healthcare, not healthcare at the mercy of the bosses. Don't we know that now? And it's like the intersectionality of crisis might be a little bit important. Hmm. The Los Angeles Times delves into the intersection of climate justice and public health. Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles provided the LA Times with a map of LA County showing which neighborhoods are the most burdened by air pollution. A map of the neighborhoods and a map of the neighborhoods that were hit hardest by COVID-19, which follows exactly the same pattern. And as the organization's director points out, it's disproportionately low-income people and families of color that are forced into these two conditions, many without access to better health care. Research, research has shut down, or sh excuse me, research has shown correlations between air pollution levels and locals' likelihood of, die, of dying from COVID-19. Taking on air pollution is a matter of racial, economic, and environmental justice, as well as public health. And public schools see enrollment drops. That can't be good for society. With shifts, shifts to virtual learning and unsafe, very unsafe in-person classes, many schools are watching their enrollment numbers fall. Washington State's superintendent reported a nearly 3% drop in enrollment statewide, while Orange County, Florida has 18,000 fewer students than on a given non-pandemic year. What's the leftist perspective? To keep students in school, we need reliable, secure, free broadband guaranteed to all Americans to make remote learning possible. We need higher pay for teachers and more funding for activities to engage students in new ways through an online format. And lastly, we need to make sure that these lower numbers don't mean permanent fiscal belt tightening, tightening and budget cuts for schools. Okay? This is what it means. We have to adapt into this new situation. There are kids who are literally living out of their cars right now with their families who have lost their jobs or hit economic uh, circumstances under COVID. And they're going, they're pulling up to McDonald's parking lots to do their homework because they're picking up the Wi-Fi. This is the new world we, we live in today. And these are the, the issues that Democrats have to be forced to take on in major cities across the country. And if they don't do that, we're about to lose a generation 
that will be learning about science so that when the next pandemic comes, we have a deeper understanding of what to do. All right. Are you guys patrons yet? For as low as $5 a month, uh, you can join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Keys show. That is where you're going to find every day's show in audio format. You're also going to get some extra content. We spill over our interviews sometimes and do separate interviews. We have special interviews with different guests. And uh, oh, yeah, wait, did I, did I show you the swag? We also have mugs, mugs and stickers and tote bags. That's at patreon.com slash the Nomi Keys show. We have an amazing show. We will be right back with Esper. Ranza Fonseca. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show and welcome to Esperanza Fonseca. She is a labor and policy organizer. She's a sex trade survivor and uh, a member of a firm. Is that the proper way of saying it? Because there's a symbol in it. We can put it in the uh, in the information on the bottom. Yeah, that's the correct way of saying it. AFFIRM stands for Association of Feminists Fighting Fascism, Imperialism, uh, Marginalization, and Refutalization. It's a mouthful, but thank you for having me on today. <laughs> of course. So you've, you've written quite a bit. Um, there's this Medium post, which we'll put up in the, uh, in, in the information as well um, on the page. But you, you wrote about your experience uh, being in sex work. And specifically uh, from a, a socialist feminist perspective, which is a big part of our show, we, we do these Fridays to educate folks a little bit more about uh, what what it really means to fight for an all-inclusive um, you know, women's movement that also talks about class and, and labor issues and you know, race and, and, of course, you know, all these things that are intersectional. So in this piece, I think what, what really got me just at the top was you do not call yourself a sex worker. You actually call yourself a prostitute. So can you explain why why that's the case? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the first thing I want to say is that I think a lot of really well-meaning people use the term sex work because they recognize that there is a big stigma against people, especially women, especially trans women in the sex trade. Uh, but for me, I find the term to be a bit too broad and too general uh, to be able to, one, name my specific experience as a prostitute and not as, you know, a porn actor or a stripper or an exotic dancer, uh, but specifically as a prostitute within the sex trade. Um, and secondly, because in attempting an analysis of the sex trade, uh, it's necessary to have a term that uh, demarcates the difference between prostitution and other forms of sex work. Uh, and so for me, you know, I also, as a Marxist and not a postmodernist, I don't believe that changing words necessarily changes material reality. Right. And so while there is some stigma associated with it, I prefer the term prostitute. Um, so you uh, you started um, your work. I mean, in this piece, you talk about your the first time you ever uh, were approached by a man on the street. Um, how long were you, for the sake of this, in, in sex work, in in pro prostitution work. I don't know if that doesn't roll off your tongue the right way, by the way. Yeah, so I think it was around two to three years that I was um, really in the sex train. Okay, so you started, how old were you when you started? Um, oh gosh, I think I was around 25. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, exited at 27, 28. And, you know, the crazy thing is you're literally traded. It's not like you're an independent. I mean, we the the problem is, is there's been this glamorous, 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 like uh, take on this in the media. And the realities are, especially for the transgender community, is it's extremely dangerous. Um, The murder rate is horribly high. Um, And you mentioned in the piece that it has been glamorized so that a lot of of, of people end up going to it for quick and easy work, but um, not understanding the the circumstances behind it. So what was your experience like? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing that I want to say is uh, speaking as a trans woman, you know, the process of transition is so difficult, right? It could be really messy, especially when, you know, you're not independently wealthy and maybe have the money to pay for surgeries and treatments that you want. Um, And it's a really hard time. And despite the fact that, you know, I had a college degree, I was, you know, a labor professional within the union movement. uh, When I started my transition, I ended up losing my job. And when I lost my job, I lost my housing. And I also Why lost... did you lose your job? What, what was the... You know, I think uh, it was a combination of transition being really hard on me as an individual, but also on, you know, discriminatory attitudes okay. on the basis of my direct supervisor and, and others. Because I was doing political and policy work, so I was sort of the face of the union mm. to different, uh, you know, political figures in, I think, seven different counties. Wow. Um, but, you know, when when I had lost my job, um, life got really hard. And in the trans community, I mean, most of us have either been in the sex trade or have friends that are in the sex trade. And it's often, you know, painted as this, you know, oh, you're just so beautiful. You're a woman that men will pay you. You could pay for everything, you know, that you were never able to before, and you can get validation for your gender. Um, And so I had a friend who sort of linked her arm with me and took me down the street. And, you know, I I had that first client. And Mm -hmm. in the beginning, it seemed sort of empowering, right? Like, oh my God, like a man actually finds me attractive enough to offer me money for this. Quickly, that illusion completely disappeared. And Mm -hmm it became a trap that I could not escape. How so? So, um, you know, in in a few different ways. Uh, The first thing I want to say, which I think is really downplayed among people, are the psychological and emotional effects of being in the sex trade. And it's not this sort of, you know, moralistic, oh, my, my body's being defiled by, you know, having sex with these men. I think it goes deeper than that. And it is the psychological effect of being treated like a commodity or like an object, specifically a sexual object by men, Uh, sort of being denied, you know, intimacy, uh, emotion, affection, and sort of all of those things being mediated through a cash transaction. Uh, and, And it gets very hard. So that's the psychological aspect. You know, the second thing, and probably the most important, is the economic aspect. You know, when you look at scholarship on the sex trade, it complete it's completely diametrically opposed to the narrative that we see from, uh, you know, media such as Business Insider that paints sex work as this. You can get out of poverty. In fact, 
if you just get an OnlyFans, you can even buy your own house, you know? Uh, but when you look at the scholarship, you see that most women who enter the sex trade because of poverty do not exit the sex trade out of poverty. They stay in poverty. And so because you're not fixing the economic reason, economic impetus that put you into the sex trade, it is that much harder to get out of it. So you, you, you broke down two different aspects. There's a psychological effect of the sex trade, and then there's the actual um, economic effect. And of course, if, if there were fair labor standards, et cetera, it would impact some of the psychological effect. But you know, there, there, there's a very real conversation. I sometimes get involved in them on Twitter, and I just have to back off because I'm not an expert. But there's a very real conversation. I hear it a lot that, you know, at the end of the day, even if sex work is, if, if it's unionized, um, like it is in, in states like Nevada, there's still this misogyny that carries a psychological effect that, that, that hurts anybody who's in that trade. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, whenever the concept of, you know, unionization comes up, I have a really sort of particular experience that I'm not sure many others share, which is that I was a union organizer before the sex trade and I was a union organizer after the sex trade. And so I always, uh, you know, think that the unionization argument is, is a little weak for a few reasons. You know, the first is that uh, we have to look at, you know, the sex trade for what it is, right? Which is sort of a relationship between the buyer or the John, the client, whatever you want to call him, and the bot, um, the sex worker, the prostitute, whatever you want to refer to her as. The buyer always has, uh, you know, the, the power in the interaction because he's the one with the money. She needs money more than he needs sex, right? She needs to pay her rent more than he needs intimacy, validation, whatever he gets from that interaction. And so in countries where prostitution was legalized or decriminalized and, you know, unions formed, you have reports from women who said, although some things have changed, he still holds the power. Um, and I think that is why... Uh, one of the biggest reasons why, you know, if efforts at reforming laws around the sex trade will fail because they don't change the fundamental relationship of power. That's right. And the fact that these women need the funds, that they have to resort to the sex work. So you, 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 you were taken by the hand into the street, um, your, your first transaction, and then after that, what happened? I mean, did, was there was there a pimp? Was there somebody who was who was working you after that? Did you? I, I'm just very curious how you go from that stage to the next. Yeah. So you know, I had recently lost my job. Um, I started sort of dabbling in the sex trade to, you know, get money, um, and I started to see it. I was like, wow, maybe I don't need a job. You know, like. I was kind of traumatized with the way that I was treated uh, at my previous job. And as a trans woman, I just felt completely like an outsider, you know, like if normal society doesn't want me, why should I want to be in normal society if I can make my own money? So I, you know, had friends who taught me how to post ads on uh, 
starting out with Craigslist and moving to Backpage. Um, and it is just sort of a trap, you know? I think those of us who come from really working class families, especially in communities of color, a lot of our families hustled in some way when they were younger. So, you know, my dad, I remember him telling me like, look, fast money will suck you in quickly but fast money goes just as quickly as it comes. And I think I learned that lesson after, but it was that fast money that sort of sucked me into that world. And then again, right, the longer I stayed in it, the harder it was to leave. Um, and I see that with many of my friends who are you know, still in the sex trade today. Were you allowed to leave? So I, I guess this is connected to the earlier question of you know, pimping. I think for most trans women uh, in the U.S., we don't have pimps, although, you know, there are definitely some. Um, but, you know, when, when you talk about, like, can you leave the sex trade, one is that for most women, there are no other options, right? So, you know, I have a friend who started in the sex trade at 16. She's 24 now. She has no other training, no other experience. How, where is she supposed to go? Um, a fast food job, that's not going to pay, allow her to survive. So one, there's no other options, uh, you know, and, and two, um, again, it's just that when you have trauma that keeps getting compounded on more trauma, psychologically, it becomes a lot harder to exit, especially when the use of drugs and other substances come in to mitigate the effects of that trauma. And we know from the data that sexual, physical, and emotional trauma permeates the sex trade. So how are you able to, to get out of it? So again, you know, I had a degree, I had a resume, and I, I still had some connections that were able to help me. But even then, it was one of the most difficult and trying periods in my life. So, um, you know, I, I write in my letter that I experienced sexual violence at, you know, on multiple occasions in the sex trade, but it was the last time that I experienced it that was the most brutal. Um, I won't go too deep in because I just don't think it's appropriate, but, you know, I was restrained, tied up. It was really bad. Um, I ended up having to go to the emergency room after to get put on PEP so that, you know, I didn't contract HIV. Um, but afterwards, no matter how much I wanted to, my body would not open up to these men. So at the time, my mom was misdiagnosed with cancer. I had to pay rent every month, and it felt like the whole world was falling on me. So I would see clients, but I would trick them. I would not have sex with them because I couldn't. Um, and it just got so bad that in myself, I decided, you know, if it's between having to see these men or be on the streets, I'm going to be on the streets. So I actually went homeless. I was, you know, looking for shelters. Most of the shelters in Los Angeles, Orange, and Ventura counties were completely booked. There was six to 12 month waiting periods. I ended up getting into one shelter um, which itself had problems, but even myself with the privileges that I do have, I was still on the streets trying to exit the sex trade and there were no resources to help me. Unreal. Um, I ha there's two things I want to ask you just about the, the stigma 
of, of sex trade. Were you afraid at any moment that law enforcement, or did you ever have any interactions with law enforcement? And, and with that, the effect it would have on your long-term goals? Yeah, so in terms of the stigma, I was never too concerned about that. I am a person who, look, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to stand behind it, right? Otherwise, I just shouldn't do it. Um, so, you know, I'm very open about my past. In terms of law enforcement, you know, there was a time where uh, these two police officers had profiled my friend and I for being transgender, walking out of a hotel at night, um, and they pulled us over and were pretty terrible to us. Um, thankfully I've had interactions with the police before, so I was able to handle it and ultimately they backed off. Um, but in terms of, you know, law enforcement, uh, you know, charging me with a crime, I mean, I, I was prepared to fight that. Okay. Um, now you're an advocate and, and, and you write about, um, I think that this piece is really powerful just for folks. I think you should definitely take a look at it because it, I think it challenges a lot of the assumptions and a lot of, of like you said, there's there there's this other side of it where it's almost become a movement um, in terms of, of how sex work, like, you know, sex work is work is work is work. You know, we say that as a line and, and of course it is, but um, there's this alternative where I think folks are having difficulty, especially if they're not part of that community, kind of digging in a little bit deeper and assessing it. Um, so, I mean, what what are your goals in educating folks? I mean, what what would what should the community? I mean, even let's just say that the the DSA community and 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 the left do to really advance what you're fighting for. Yeah. So, this is a great question because I think that as the left today, um, we really have to uh, question the dominant narrative around the sex trade. You know, as a union organizer, I've organized hotel workers at Disneyland. I've organized McDonald's workers. I've organized Walmart workers. And if an organizer or an organization is pro-industry, they are not pro-worker. And uh, you see this, you know, when we organize fast food workers, we don't say, you know, fast food work is work. We say, let's talk about the exploitation of McDonald's, of Burger King, of the industry. Let's talk about how they prey on the vulnerability of immigrant workers, of women, single moms who need to support their families. Uh, and yet in the sex trade uh, movement, what you see is that people are very pro-industry, you know, and it's actually been documented throughout, you know, decades that, uh, you know, pro-sex trade, uh, so-called prostitute unions typically uh, advocate for the interests of pimps and johns more than they do for women in prostitution themselves. And so as the left, especially uh, people who call ourselves socialist, we have to have a position on the sex trade that is pro-worker, pro-women, but anti-industry. And that is the message that I want to get across, which is that you can be pro-women, pro-sex worker, but by no means should you be pro-industry. The sex industry is one of the most exploitative and violent industries today, and it has been throughout history. And if you are pro-industry, you are not a leftist and you are not a socialist. So this, 
I, this is a strange question, but um, you know, there was this huge write-up in the New York Times about OnlyFans and and also about um, Pamela Anderson, right? And she's, you know, she is a socialist. She is on the left. She's written for Jacobin. Uh, this is not, you know, the the idea for those of you who didn't know that. Um, you know, she she really thinks deeply about these issues, and she's very pro-sex. I mean, how do you communicate with that message simultaneously, even being, being pro-sex um, and owning and being paid for your work, um, but also challenging the industry itself? Yeah. So, you know, one is just that I think a lot of people confuse uh, my perspective with this sort of moralistic anti-sex perspective. Right. I'm not anti-sex, right? And the reason why is because my opposition to the sex trade is not rooted in religious or, you know, bourgeois morality. It's rooted in the simple fact that this is an industry which, uh, you know, thrives on vulnerability, recruits from the most oppressed, hyper-exploited classes of women and queer people, um, and traps them in there, often unable to leave, unable to exit. And so, um, I, again, I think that, you know, when we talk about being pro-sex, I am for the liberation of our bodies and our sexualities. But that doesn't mean uh, that I don't see the role of the market. And that sounds a little confusing. So let me just explain that in a much clearer way. The left nowadays often talks about the state, but we don't talk about capitalism enough. And so when we talk about sexual liberation, we talk about getting state involvement and regulation off of our bodies and off of our sexualities. But we forget that if our sexualities and bodies are controlled by the market, that is also a form of oppression. And so I want our sexualities, our reproductive capacities to be liberated, not just from state control, but also from control of the market. And I think that is a real politic of sexual liberation. Esperanza, fascinating. I, I wish I could talk to you for another half an hour. Um, really interesting work. We showed your, your article up on on the screen. We're going to put it in um, the information section on YouTube. But thank you so much for joining us. And we'd love to have you back on if you have anything else that you, you are, you know, you've written. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. All right, guys, uh, we will be right back with our Femme Friday panel. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, so you definitely want to stick around because it's going to be funny. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am super excited about our panel here. Uh, before we go into the panel, I do want to play a video, though, and then we'll go right in. Darcy, do you have that video ready? This is for all the girls out there who were told they couldn't frack because they were a woman. Well, I'm here to tell you, keep drilling because we are the daughters of the oil rigs they couldn't spill into the Gulf of Mexico. Nevertheless, we frack sisted. I don't just frack for me. I frack for my friends. I frack for my family. I frack for my stay-at-home grandmother who was told she couldn't. My hands frack like this, so her hands can frack like this because we believe in science. We believe in saving the environment, and by God, will we continue to destroy it. It's 2020. <laughs> Fracking is now intersectional, and we're not going back. 
You know, I heard of a girl who was told she couldn't frack. And that little girl was Hermione Granger. And no, we don't have a magic wand, but we have something more powerful. Our brains. I, for one, stand by the famous Democratic slogan, drill, baby, drill. Although I would argue it's time to change it. Drill, woman, drill. Thank you so much. Good night. I've watched that like 50 times at this point. I still catch something new. Um, Kylie Brakeman, uh, welcome to the show for the first time. Kylie is an actor, writer, and improviser. Uh, she writes for the UCB, which is an improv uh, group, I guess, organist, you know, there's like an office, there's a place, playhouse, I don't know, what do you call it? Improv um, group? It, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater is, theater. um... That's the word. That would be the, the word, word I was looking for. Yes, yes. that's and why I write we have for a mod up. team that is a house team of that theater. Love it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we have Emil Niazi, who is a freelance writer and the showrunner for Pop Chat. Thanks for joining, gals. Thank you for having me. So, I, um, Emil, you are muted, just so you know. The, the lovely days of Zoom. Okay, classic. So, <laughs> classic. So if you said something interesting, please say it again. No. Okay, <laughs> nice. All right. So, Kylie, like, this was, um, this is Making the Rounds. It's not your first video like this. But I, what I love about this is there's been some videos lately. They're funny. There's, like, a little shtick. There's a little bit, you know, whatever. And then it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and there's no deeper analysis to the political world that we're living in. And I felt like, yeah, really, got to the neoliberal root right there uh, <laughs> in post-debate. So what inspired you to... I think it's just, I mean... Number one, I'm on Twitter 12 hours a day. My screen time is atrocious, um, but it's also like the origin point for how I make my money. So I kind of have to be on there. Um, but it's it's just like constantly being inundated with these messages of like corporate, like pussy hat feminism that is just like very empty. And just the Democratic Party sort of appropriating this woke language without believing in the things that they're espousing and without acting on them. And so it was just like so frustrating that I've started doing these characters that are just very that very like woke girl boss. um, And I just find it so funny that they're like this. (laughs) So, I mean, why at this stage where you've had clearly the left has grown tremendously they're scared of the left they did all they could to 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 kill the left this last cycle Mm -hmm. i i just i think what i understand is how do you think they can get away with it still like they know that people see through the woke hashtags i mean i mean what do do you what do you think i don't think that i don't think that people do see through it like as as predictable um and and trite as it is to us like i really don't think that the majority of people um that are watching and like earnestly tweeting like yes you know this is for every woman that's been interrupted in a meeting and you're just like guys you know like 865,000 women were forced to leave the workforce last month and we're still talking about boardroom feminism as if like there's just 10 white women and they are the only ones that are affected by feminism and democracy it's you know it's deranged but but i really don't think that um i think there are a lot of people out there for whom that kind of stuff really is inspiring and they do they do see um capitalism as you know 
as an inevitability. So they're just like, of course, yes, we have to frack, frack away. Like, how can I get in on that fracking? You know, <laughs> I mean, RuPaul is literally making money from fracking. So like, Wait, I love that. Can you that. explain this? What I didn't, I saw this on Twitter and I was like, what? He has a ranch in Wyoming that he leases out to oil companies for fracking. Yeah. Is it next Which to Kanye West's ranch? So <laughs> funny. If you get to be a certain level of fame, you're like, I, I think something switches off in your brain where you're like, I think I could be fracking. <laughs> I've made my it's money in like the drag ballroom scene, and I think now I'm going to frack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like um, the Ellen DeGeneres phase of, of capitalism. <laughs> you know, all right, I can get married to my wife now. I am now going to a meet with a, a murderous uh, president. Who doesn't want to sell out? Yeah, as long as you got the out. good seats, you know, as long as you. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing I expect him to have, it is the baseball seats. That's what I do see. All right. So <laughs> if there's, um, I'd like to ask this question because, you know, intersectionality, you made fun of it and, and that that piece, but it's it's very much, you know, we, we, we talk about the intersectionality of the climate crisis and, and racial justice and education justice, it's just like all, everything, right? That's intersectionality. So sometimes this works, though. If you want to, like, convince your mom who might be perfectly, like, meanwhile, but she may have read, like, Sheryl Sandberg's book, uh, Lean In, she may be part of a Lean In circle or whatever it is. What is a good issue? Like, what do you think is the access point to kind of hook them and then bring them over to our side? Ooh, I mean, it is a sort of thing where, like, as you're saying, you do need them to be on board at a certain point. I think that birth control is, like, a big one. Um, when RBG passed away... Um, I tweeted this and a lot of other people tweeted this like, oh no, I'm worried about my birth control. I tweeted it within like a minute of it happening because that was just my gut reaction of like, right. I'm pretty privileged. Like that's probably the only thing that would happen to me. Mm. Um, and a lot of people afterwards tweeted like, don't like white women, you'll be fine. Like, don't worry about like, what are you stop complaining? And it's like, yes, fully that's true, but you need to trick them. <laughs> into thinking that they're in danger. And like, to a certain extent, yes, yeah. like abortion rights, birth control, like those are serious things that will be taken away from us. But like, I think that is like a latching on point where it's like, okay, this will affect me and my body. How can I get into this movement? Um, mm. And that's just my guess as somebody who is, uh, who does improv comedy. Take that with a grain of salt. Very effectively. I also think I think pay equity is a real yeah. um, easy one to sort of like speak to to kind of like you know second wave feminists to speak to women who think feminism is a dirty word. Um, it, you know we do still live under a capitalist society, so if you want to really speak to those lean in moms, I think it is about pay equity and it's about. Um, it's so easy to spell out as well. You know, you can get one of those Katie Porter whiteboards and just be like, you know, for every dollar a man makes, you know, white women make this much and then black women make this much and let, you know, let's make this much and like just go down. And it's just so easy. And I think um, a very low entry point. Um, but, you know, when you realize that you're making that much less than, you know, Greg and Bob at work, I think it is infuriating and really frustrating um, and a really natural kind of point to illustrate intersectionality without like scaring um, grandma 
Screwing grammar away from the revolution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting though, because I, I remember a few years ago talking to a women's group, and it was a very, it was at that 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 place, the Wing, which is um, a mm-hmm. you know, for those of you who don't know, it's like a an all it's a women's only workspace, but it's, you you basically have to pay, um, your first child and like your entire bank account to have one month of of rent there to work, but it's very pretty. And they've got a lot of empowering feminist books on the wall. So I spoke at this one panel there and clearly I was like the most left one, but I was asked something specifically like, what do you think? Um, you know, what does feminism mean to you? And I was like, well, you know, I can't see us, ending smashing the patriarchy until we smash capitalism and like there was a gasp from the audience yeah and i was like all right bear with me okay how many men are in the uh, in boardrooms right now just percentage wise who do you think's making the decisions okay cool that's it (laughs) case closed like i just think it's as basic as that like if you sure you can get more women in the boardroom but at the end of the day it's still male dominated most in fact all except for one wall street firms banking firms are run by men and of course there's a mindset that trickles down. Now that's not the most complicated way of explaining it, but I think it's an access point for these like capitalist women who may not understand. And I think sometimes it can, it's, it's hard for them to confront their own privilege, um, which is, you know, I feel like a really big issue in 2016 with a lot of folks. I mean, what do you guys think? Like, is, is, is there a great strategy for folks at home to, have maybe they have wealthier friends maybe they have you know they're older people in their community who have a little bit more privilege and like they want you know how do you get them to kind of recognize that like they have to take a little less money to help more women <laughs> well you don't tell them that they're going to take less money first of all you Tax don't want to yeah that's right um i mean i think actually the the pandemic has been uh i think really sort of illustrative of a lot of the things that we talk about when we talk about um, changing sort of the the communal aspects of capitalism, of approaching a more sort of socialist or, you know, um, socialist democrat sort of uh, society, um, things like mutual aid. Um, and, you know, that's just so simple when you talk about, like, making sure that your neighbor has groceries if they can't, you know, if they're immunocompromised and they can't get to the grocery store, if they're missing a paycheck and they didn't get um, relief funds. Um, I think talking about it in ways that are really tangible, because I think tax dollars and, um, you know, eradicating capitalism can seem very esoteric and hard to grasp. But I think when you talk about it as more of like the village um, and how we help each other in that village, you know, I think that that's so important and that hits home. Um, Church groups do it. You know, people already do it in their own communities, but I think when you can sort of like just help them take that next step to like Mm -hmm. the way that we've been helping each other get through these past six months by, you know, sharing groceries, by sharing food, by advocating for, um, you know, rent freezes, that when that trickles up, then that's what we're talking about when we talk about sort of like looking at changing the face of capitalism, right? Um, And that's how I talk about it with, my friends who still have jobs and haven't been as impacted. It's like, well, we've, you know, there's a mutual aid um, kind of like fridge uh, down the street from me where people can come and take what they need. Um, you know, those right. little free libraries are now stocked with food and groceries and spices. And I think that that just like, that's a really easy way um, and thing to point to when you're saying like, that's what we're talking about when we mean um, for the, you know, for the many, uh, yeah. not the few. Yeah, hopefully, I mean, what I 
think is happening and what I hope is happening. But again, I'm in like an algorithm that is keeping me in the same opinions like everybody else. Um, like the pandemic is blowing everything wide open. And I mm -hmm. think it's radicalizing people at a very rapid rate. Um, like, because we, we trust in the system. And I saw it with, I was working at a restaurant before uh, everything went down and for a couple of very scary weeks in California when they decided to just like experiment and reopen. And then of course everything uh, did not go well. Yeah. Um, but like, I would see it with my like older female coworkers where they'd just kind of be like, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure the restaurant will keep us safe. I'm sure that like X, corporation will keep us safe. I'm sure that the Hillstone company has our best interests at heart. And then like slowly just seeing them go like, oh no, they've packed the restaurant. They don't care about the rules. They're like breathing in the food. We're all touching the same things with our hands and not everyone saw it, but I would start to point these things out. And I think I changed a couple people's minds. Like, I think there is this blanket trust in like companies and the government to a certain extent to like take care of you. And I think that this hopefully is blowing that wide open that like, no, at the end of the day, they're not gonna save your job. They're not gonna give you sick pay. Your landlords don't care. Like all these things that maybe you had some shred of hope that they would save you, they won't. And so hopefully that's an access point. So, so that's a great point because now we have this ticket um, with Kamala Harris on it and you know, that's why I loved your video. And there's another video we're going to play at the end that you did, um, which hits on this, too. There's there's still this trust that Democrats will save us. They'll just go back to the Obama years like that was a great period either. I mean, but it was great for this section of people, the, the folks who invest in the mm -hmm. stock market or just, you know, secure enough that they're not feeling it or seeing it. And they're in their own little algorithm of like, you know, pantsuit nation algorithm on Facebook or whatever it is that they do. Um, so. I mean, how do we take that that access point and and keep them our version of woke in a potential Biden Harris administration? Emil, God, that is like that's the question. I mean, <laughs> I, that's why you're on. Come on, guys. <laughs> you gotta answer. I mean, that's like the scary thing is I think that that people are would love to just go back to the status quo, even though this this pandemic has shown that the status quo was not working for almost anybody except for the very, very, very tiniest percentage of people who are going to be fine no matter what. Um, and so like, that's kind of my biggest fear is that a Biden-Harris ticket is just like a sigh of relief and everyone goes like, done, handled, like Olivia Pope style, close the cell phone and just like walk away. Um, and I really think, I mean, Bernie, <laughs> where are you, Bernie? I just think like, people have to really stay on the key issues and decide what those are now and that that has to be you know whether it's the green new deal or healthcare. um i think it's just about choosing the issues that you know that you can really um put pressure on and 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 target those kind of key key states and those key congress people and those key senators and just um hope that that those few things that are, are the most pressing and most important are gonna be enough to sort of turn that that really centrist, really neoliberal ticket into some hopefully um, does provide what, what the majority of Americans need and want. I mean, those are the number two things that they care about, healthcare and the environment. And I just believe that in 2020, 
you have Kamala Harris tweeting, Joe Biden will not ban fracking. In the, in, like, I'm aghast. Yeah, it, while her state's on fire. Yeah, it's it's just like there's no, they refuse to campaign on the popular ideas, which is mind-blowing. It's like Medicare for all, I've never seen so many people flip in such a short amount of yeah. time. And like, of course, that's Bernie and everyone working at the grassroots level. But like my friends, parents who make a lot of money, they work in finance, like they've always been like very staunch sort of like Reagan Republicans, but then they didn't vote for Trump. And then I, within the past year or so, they've been like, maybe everyone should have health care. Like, I don't know if they're fully <laughs> going to say it, but they're like, maybe that's something we could explore is people um, staying alive for free. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's like we we need to be pushing them. And a lot of people will say I get a ton of comments that are like this. that are just like, well, you're just helping Trump. And it's like we can't keep fighting for this thing that's this fictional center that's harming so many people. Like it's right. so it's not working for anyone. And we have to demand more. I mean, we're going to settle now, but we're going to demand more. And we have to. It also doesn't allegedly exist, this center, right? right? Yeah. Like all of the statistics say that that most people are being pulled towards either side of the axis. So if that's the case, why are, I mean, I know why, because they're the Democratic Party and they love to fail. Um, why are you going after like an ever shrinking population? Um, yeah, we're going what? after 12 people yeah, who work out, on yeah. a farm. Ken Bone. Um. <laughs> Still doesn't know he's voting for. Maybe Ken Bone <laughs> should be checked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, it just, it I, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make sense. I mean, but that's also by design, right? We, we, we understand, like, they're very, Democrats are very good at killing the left. Very bad. <laughs> winning the general elections, very good at making ads, very bad at mobilizing the vote uh, to, well, hopefully it'll be better this time around, so that they can overcome voter suppression, which is Republicans' like number one trick in the book. Yeah. So. Anyways, ladies, I am so grateful that you came on. It went by so, so, so fast. Um, Emil Niazi, thanks for joining us for the first time. And Kylie Brakeman, we're going to play your second video at the end. So I don't Dorsey, do we have that one handy? I might have to do a few little thank yous for our chat. So if you want to stick around and watch your video live. Of course. <laughs> I'm going to watch right. it. I'm going to watch it, Kylie. It's so good. I like spent so much. I basically asked you to marry me on my Twitter too the other day. Oh my gosh. Yesterday. <laughs> like, so, you know, we can make it official now. All right. Course, big thing. Yeah. Of course. Lock it in. <laughs> when, when this is over, we'll get married. We'll have our wedding. We'll zoom <laughs> in. Um, big thank you to uh, the moderators, Bob, Billy, and... COA61. COA. Is that is that it, Dorsey? Is that like how it's supposed to be spelled out? I don't have it in front of me. And of course, Professor Harvey K, who's always in the chat. Okay, it's Chonio Nashes. I, I can't Chonio Nashes. I'm so sorry, Chonio Nashes. I'm gonna read it. Choking on he's typing me. Choking on ass. Choking you guys are, you, you literally cannot see. I wish you could see my chat right now because I'm like, I can't read this. 
choking on ashes. It's an account, right? They're in the chat helping out with moderating. And thank you so much because if you moderate after today, I really owe you a gift. I'm going to send you a mug because it's choking on ashes. So thank you so much. That was the autocorrect I was I was being told by Dorsey. Um, thank you to everybody for liking and subscribing. Thank you uh, to everyone on the show today and Dorsey, who's keeping me sane. Uh, let's play that quick clip and we will see you on Monday at 3 o'clock. Fires are burning across California and someone should do something about this. P.S. My name is Gavin Newsom. I'm the governor of this state. Mr. President, sir, you will be in for a rude awakening when you find out what you're doing is illegal. Trump is destroying democracy. Pass it on. That's right. Pass it on to people in power. Not to me, though. I'm just a little speaker of the house. Mr. President, sir, I will say in the harshest terms possible, and I do not mince words, sir. I do not like your tone. Donald Trump is systematically destroying the post office. Let that sink in. I voted for his military budget. Shh. Let me be perfectly clear. Climate change is already here, and we must act. Not me, though. I'm busy. Nice try with that illegal action, Donald Trump. In America, we have a system of checks and balances. I'm the checks and balances, and I haven't done anything yet. Fires are burning across California, and someone should do something about this. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Brilliant work. Uh, keep keep up with the brilliance. I'm loving it. Like, I, I could watch you on loop. In fact, you might be on loop for the next few shows because everyone needs to see your work. You All right. Of course. And um, by the way, special uh, shout out to Harvey. It's his birthday. Professor Harvey K., famous in his own way, shows up in our chats and debates people, which is amazing. So happy birthday, Harvey, and everybody send him the love. We will see you on Tuesday.